murder, insanity, suicide. The history of Hill House was ideal. It had everything I wanted. It was built 90 odd, very odd years ago, by a man named Hugh Crane, as a home for his wife and daughter in the most remote part of New England he could find. Welcome to Now Playing's The Haunting Movie Retrospective Series. What does it take to convince you that the dead do not always rest in peace? But some houses, like Hill House, are born bad. Hosted by Jacob. You are a looker, aren't you? A real tomato. Arnie. You're worse than a guy. You're like a frat guy. And Stuart. You're a monster. You're the monster of Hill House. This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You're scared. I can tell. How? Because I'm scared. Listener discretion is advised. Okay. I'm listening. Today, we're discussing The Haunted, starring Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Hamblin, directed by Robert Wise. This is the now-playing co-host who walks alone on the boulevard of broken dreams, Arnie. And Stuart. It's taken 60 million years to create the carnivorous biped you hear before you. This is Jacob. <laughs> I'm worth every eon. <laughs> I don't know, this movie's so old, I might have to add another million years to that. <laughs> Why are we covering the movie from 1963? It's not genuinely our habit to go back 60 years to cover horror, but we do like to do our homework every now and then. And given that our Gold Level series this fall is Paranormal Activity, I felt like if we're going to watch a really modern take on a haunted house movie, we need to go back to the classic, the blueprint, what I'm going to call the granddaddy of all haunted house movies. It started with Robert Wise adapting Shirley Jackson, The Haunting, 1963. And I'm going to take your word on that, Stuart, that this is the granddaddy of haunted house films because I feel like every year we get three or four films called The Haunting or The Haunting on some ill or some four. Somewhere there's a haunting, it seems like, in the movie. So, okay, this is where you're going to say it starts, though. For me, it is. I mean, obviously that line can move. There are obviously earlier movies set in creepy old mansions. Many of the things they're going to deal with, they did not originate. But I do feel like this is a movie that takes what you would expect about a haunted house movie and marries it with the psychological, some might even say elevated horror genre, and created the first non-campy haunted house movie. You know, there was a movie around the same time by William Castle that I think gets confused with it a lot. House on Haunted Hill, very different from The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, they're all the same name. They all have haunt in it. It's very confusing to me. <laughs> and how does this relate to the Hell House movie we reviewed? Very closely. The Haunting of Hill House is a book written by Shirley Jackson in 1959 that has influenced a lot of things, including The Legend of Hell House by Richard Matheson and Stephen King's The Shining and one of my favorites, Poltergeist. I think the reason why I came by this original movie, I didn't see it back in the 80s, but because I had such a love for Spielberg's take on suburban haunted houses that eventually when I stumbled on this, it was like a revelation. I realized the Spielberg movie, the Tobey Hooper movie, didn't invent as much as I thought it did. That a lot of what they did came out of this. So how does House on Haunted Hill from William Castle relate to this? 
William Castle, like, is a known prankster, like a, a huckster. He got people into the movie theaters by selling the campy side of horror. You know, I think that movie had like a skeleton that glowed in the dark that they strung up on wires. And at a certain part, it comes sailing out into the audience. I thought that's what we were going to get in this film. A lot of, yeah, the candlesticks floating on strings in hallways. Yeah, no, but that was in the actual movie theaters. Audiences would actually see a prop descend at a certain moment. A 4D experience. This is the guy who would put the buzzers on the bottom of your seats and do like the tingler or whatever. Yeah, the tingler. A lot of fun. Again, I'm not knocking those movies, but what they tried to do here was do something legitimate, something serious, something psychological. This movie comes from a Oscar-winning director, Robert Wise, in between... His two biggest hits, he had just made West Side Story, he was going to make The Sound of Music, but somewhere in between there, he decided to create a classic haunted house story. That makes sense because there is a point where I'm like, the house is haunted with The Sound of Music, like she's doing that Maria twirl and everything. He was like trying out the move. (laughs) Yeah, she does do a Maria twirl in this. You're absolutely right. This could be a musical. I'm shocked that it's not. This does seem like it's, the odd man out in that there are no musical numbers in this one. Right. And I just want to point out, this is a guy we've covered before. We didn't cover either West Side Story or The Sound of Music, but we did cover Star Trek, the motion picture. And we did not think he was very wise in his choices in that movie. He basically ripped off Kubrick 2001. It was probably one of the worst Trek movies, arguably. Star Trek V will always own that title. Oh, I like V. <laughs> Yeah, I get your point. But anyway, just curious, just because we're starting into this genre, which, again, I have a lot of affection for. Do you guys like haunted house movies or haunted houses? Do you like to go at Halloween and have people jump out at you? What's your favorite one? I did go to some of those haunted houses when I was in college. I was dragged to them. Not really a thing that I'm into. But yeah, you mentioned The Shining or Poltergeist classics, I would say. But yeah, I like those. If we're calling those haunted house films, I think it fits. But there is one, like my favorite, and we got to do it someday. It's a Japanese haunted house film from the 70s, House or Haosu. Oh, yes. Haosu, that cat, man, that cat painting. Yeah, I agree. We'll do it one day. I promise you. I like haunted houses, the ones you actually go in. I remember, though, at a certain point in my life, realizing exactly how cheap most of them look. They're just not scary to me. Yeah, I know they're fake. As a kid, I would get so scared in those. And, you know, somebody would jump out and I'd be like so scared to even go in. And now I'd love to go to some of those really good ones in New York and things. But you've got a seven hour, eight hour wait to get in to the really good ones. So I love the concept of a haunted house attraction. And as I've talked about on the show before, I used to live in a haunted house. Yes. You have an association. Thinking about the movies, is it a genre you gravitate to? Is there one that's a favorite that you would hold up and say, this is what a haunted house movie is? Don't say that Eddie Murphy Haunted Mansion film. Please don't say that one. (laughs) Here's what I got thinking as I was coming to this movie is, just to put it out there, is there a fucking hope in hell of me liking this movie? Because look at the ghost movies we have reviewed on Now Playing. Now, I love the original Poltergeist. Not as much as you do, I think, if it's a measuring contest to but I love that original Poltergeist. But I couldn't recommend either of those sequels the way you did. Mm-hmm. But then I think about the Conjuring films and the Insidious films and The Shining I did recommend, but 
sinister. There have been so many haunted house films that we've done. And I've just read Arrow, read Arrow. So not because this is from 1963. It's just because you have a bad record for haunted house films on now playing. No, 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 no. This is the Venn diagram of which I'm drawing for you. Oh, okay. All the overlapping circles coming together. Okay. On the one circle <laughs> is haunted house films that I have read Arrowed. And I want to like ghost films. I really do. I watch a lot of ghost films wanting to like them. The sequel to this, I saw when it was new because I wanted to like it. And the remake of 13 Ghosts around the same time. I want to like these things, but I haven't found them done well. Same with a whole lot of our grudge reviews. On the other side of the Venn diagram are movies before I was born. Now, yes, <laughs> there are some that I do love. I mean, I gave a good recommend to The Fly, the original one. I recommended Curse of the Fly, even. You kept going. Yeah, absolutely. And Psycho. I do really love Psycho. I stand by that as a great classic horror thriller film. But by and large, they seem to fall more in the camp of the thing from outer space than Psycho. So I'm coming to this and I want to say my mind was open. I'm like, Stuart says this is a classic. Okay, but the deck is stacked against this movie and me having a good relationship. Sure. I don't think that anyone would think that this was your jam. It will be a real surprise if you find things in it that you really love. Yeah, and I will say there's something about it being from the 60s. I'm like, okay, it's not going to be scary, but I, I think I probably could go in more open-minded than Arnie with these older films. Like, I I'm willing to give it a try, even though, again, Haunted House, it just feels like there's so many, just like exorcism films, there's always an exorcism of somebody being done. It it's easy to get lost in those. So I'm glad that you're laying a path out for me, Stuart, because I'm open to it. There seems like a, a lot of noise in this genre, though. I want to back up something that I heard you say in there. I don't think you have to come to classic horror movies to get scared. I know it sounds like a contradiction. Isn't that the point of a horror movie? I coined a term on our coverage of the patron show Legend of Hell House as the Sunday afternoon horror movie. The movie that you watch with the lights on that's really more about just absorbing the subtext and watching the tropes and how they're utilized and repurposed. If you like a genre... It doesn't necessarily have to be intensely emotional to satisfy you. I guess what I would say is I feel like I can enjoy a haunted house movie without it being scary. And so I'm maybe a little bit more open to nostalgia movies that, yeah, let's just face it. Most movies prior to 1968, I'll call that the line, are more challenging for modern audiences to watch and appreciate. Yeah, I will say where this one goes is we'll get into it, but it does really surprise me because like I said, I, I thought we we're going to get a lot of plastic skeletons being thrown out of closet doors and stuff like that. That was my expectation. Mm, wow. Yes. Very not what they were going for. And just to preface here, do you guys have any familiarity with Shirley Jackson? I had to read her short story, The Lottery. Yeah, I know The Lottery. Everyone knows The Lottery, right? So you at least know that she is considered a, a master of the horror genre, but she comes by it in a weird way. She started as a humorist and she wrote for Good Housekeeping magazine a lot about domesticity and being a housewife, writing funny pieces at a time where lots of women in the 1950s were suddenly finding themselves on pills and not happy in their married home lives and started seeing the house 
as a struggle and as a representation of oppression. And the house on Haunted Hill is really Shirley Jackson breaking from what she traditionally wrote about to tell a creepy story about how domestic life can threaten women. And again, at a time where we had the feminine mystique and Betty Friedan, and it was just topical. So her stuff got considered in a different way than the schlock paperback dime novels of horror at that time. And Lottery, the same thing. I don't know if you guys remember, but basically it's a woman going about the chores of her day, living in this society that seems oh so normal. And then the twist ending is that they run on this crazy ritual that women occasionally get stoned to death. And so you get the idea that behind suburban 1950s happy life, there is this secret sadism. That's her bag. And that's kind of where the novel resides. And it's good. I read it for the first time for this review. And I will say this, even if you don't like The Haunting in any version, go check out her stuff, particularly if you like Edgar Allan Poe. It's the same setup as this movie, but goes in different places. It, it has a more expansive idea about where the horror is coming from. Yeah, based on this film, not having read that novel, but it does feel much more Victorian era horror than what you might think of more modern day. If you're familiar with those old Victorian horror films, I think that's a better set of expectations than plastic skeletons jumping out of closets. Right. I agree completely. I think that your date of 1968 feels right. If we had been looking at later 60s, I would have had probably better hopes. Right. Yeah. So knowing that this is going to be a challenge, I will just put this out. I think that it will help you in any haunted house movie we go forward with in the future, including paranormal activity. I'm going to be looking for certain tropes that we are going to find in the skeleton, in the bones of this movie. I think this movie lays out the structure of a haunted house movie very well, and you'll be able to use it as a reference tool, as many writers do. Again, Stephen King, Richard Matheson, Steven Spielberg, all of them cite this novel and this movie as a big reference. So let's get into it. Arnie, give him the plot and we'll find out what's so haunting. Hill House is a 90-year-old Massachusetts mansion. Everyone who lived in the house died in accidents or suicide. Gossip says the house is haunted. Now the house is owned by Mrs. Sanderson, played by Faye Compton, though she has left the house unoccupied. Paranormal investigator Dr. John Markaway, played by Richard Johnson, wants to investigate the house for ghosts. Sanderson agrees only if her nephew and heir Luke is allowed to tag along. Dr. Markaway picks two other investigators to join him. First is Theodora, a clairvoyant. The other is Eleanor Lance, also called Nell, played by Julie Harris. Eleanor has a history of paranormal experiences as a child. Now grown up, Eleanor became her ailing mother's caretaker. Eleanor's mother recently died and Eleanor blames herself, so she's excited to go to Hill House for what she calls a vacation. At the house, the four experience supernatural events, such as an unexplained banging on walls, unintelligible voices from unseen places, and even a message written on the wall that mentions Eleanor by name. These events get the already unstable Eleanor even more rattled as each event seems more focused on her, yet she decides she never wants to leave Hill House, never wants to move back in with her sister. Dr. Markaway's wife comes to the house, but that night the four investigators hear loud banging and Grace goes missing. Dr. Markaway forces Eleanor to leave Hill House, but as Eleanor drives towards the gate, someone or something seems to try to take the wheel. Grace appears in front of the car, and Eleanor swerves and hits a tree, dying in the crash. 
Luke thinks Eleanor hit the tree on purpose, suicide, while Dr. Markaway swears something was in the car with her as they leave that house and credits roll. And so it's all about the house, right? The scary thing, the thing that people always talk about this movie is there is no ghost. You're never going to see a skeleton or a special effect or what have you. You have to believe that this house is alive and it in and of itself, just its architecture, its structure. We will learn every angle of this movie is slightly a tilt. And Shirley Jackson came from a series of fathers and grandfathers who were architects. She was very familiar with the construction of the house and she saw psychology in the way that houses were constructed. Yeah, we start off, it's all about this house. We're told it's evil, but it looks like the have this house and it's askew and then it's superimposed over this cloudy sky like it already looks twisted and weird even before we're told about how all the angles are off in it real place you can go there it's a motel now in england but uh, yeah the exteriors are an actual castle everything else soundstage of course oh that is an actual castle mm -hmm. i thought that was an amazing matte painting or something yeah it looks like a great matte painting <laughs> Don't you want to go there? Like, here's the litmus test. Are you rolling your eyes at the portentous way that it's being described? Or do you think it's giggling and fun to think that we're going to spend some time in this over-the-top place? Again, I get into this opening. It's a lot of exposition going on here because we're going to be told about all the residents and how they died. It grabs me. It's silly. The fact that you got to do exposition this clumsy, but it just feels very old-timey. And this is an older film. So yeah, I'm rolling my eyes at first, but I get into it. Just this long history. There's some real artistic shots with some of the deaths, the woman walking up the stairs with the rope on the silver platter, and then you see her feet hanging. So yeah, my arms are crossed when it's opening up because it's just so old fashioned. Oh my gosh, you're just going to read a book to me. But because of the way the shots are going, I do start to giggle and get into it and go, okay, this is a fun haunted house, even though I'm not seeing ghost or goblin. Asking a little put off by the voiceover. I keep wondering, is that Vincent Price? The voice sounds like a sound alike of Vincent Price. It's Markaway. We'll actually meet the character. I know. I, I figure out who it is later. But when I'm first starting this, but the voiceover is dense and I'm trying to follow all of it. But the camera work is great in this opening and in this film. I think the highest praise I can give it is for some of the camera work, especially knowing that they didn't have a lot of the tricks back then that they have today, like handheld cams, steady cams, and whatnot. Right. It has a Citizen King quality. And Xanadu, when you think about the opening of that movie, it's also a haunted house. We see that there's this light in the window and we're drawn into it. And here we're told scandal, murder, insanity, suicide are inside. Uh, you could either say, I don't want to go, or you can say, this will be fun to go back in time to when people appreciated this level of melodrama is what I would call it. This is a hyperbolic horror movie that, yeah, if they were to try it now, it would be seen as retro and probably Crimson Peak, which frankly sucked. But let's look at what this movie is telling us, because I think one of the big gambits is, all right, the house is alive, it's full of evil, or this was certainly Shirley Jackson's take on things. A haunting is a marriage between the environment and the person that comes to it. And so we could make the argument that everything that is going to be experienced here has more to do with the psychology of basically now than the fact that there are residual ghosts. Do you believe Hugh Crane is still in this house when we get this 
90-year opening montage, we will learn that Hugh Crane built it for a wife that never lived to see it. That they were taking a carriage ride up the winding path when the horses got scared and she was thrown and killed. And now we have the story of an angry, grieving father having to care for a daughter who probably has some guilt about her mother is not alive. And that will be reflected in the main character that comes to live there 90 years later. You gotta kind of blame Hugh, though. Like, he built this house with weird angles. Like, the doors aren't centered, so he brought this on himself. It does feel like the haunting is about relationships. It could be husband and wife, or it could be mother-daughter, as we'll explore with Eleanor. But, yeah, I go through a lot of different theories throughout this film. Like, whether this is a big gaslighting moment for Eleanor, or are they, are they doing some experiment with her? Like, I go through a, a lot of different ideas as I'm watching this, because, yeah, it's more of a psychological thriller than... A film about a haunted house, really. Yeah, we'll never see a ghost. So if you believe there's a ghost, you're buying into what Markaway hopes is there. We see a door like expand and shrink, and that's about it. Right. And again, all subjective in the dark. Because people are scared, they might see things that aren't really happening. But just more about the setup here. So we have this looming father figure and a dead mother figure and a child that has a lot of guilt there's a second wife that pops up and falls down the stairs for reasons. <laughs> but mostly it's about Abigail, right? She loses her parents early and then just never leaves the nursery. She never leaves that room. That's so creepy. Yeah. A really cool dissolve shot. I feel like when we see the six-year-old girl just age in a single take to an 80-year-old crone. And again, it feels very Victorian. It reminded me of Great Expectations with Miss Havisham. Mm-hmm. Always sitting around in that wedding dress. Yeah. She's hired a companion from town who naturally doesn't want to care for her. Believe it or not, people like that don't really love you and will slip away to have sex with the farmhand when you need help getting out of bed and are banging on the walls. Yeah. It's interesting they use the word companion because I think we do have another companionship later on with Eleanor and uh, Theodore, but this is a companionship in the way those two might be having a companionship. It's not requited by the companions. Yeah. She wants to be with the farm boy. I didn't take companion that way. I took companion more like how we're going to find out about Eleanor and her mother, just a caretaker like Dolores Claiborne. Maybe, but I do think I'll just put it out there in reading the Shirley Jackson novel. I feel like it's not even subtext that Eleanor is a lesbian. It's barely subtext in this film, which is shocking. Wait, Eleanor lesbian? Yes. Because in, in this movie, Eleanor is crushing on a man. Right. Oh, no, she's totally into Theo. No. Okay, I thought those two were going to hook up. I will put it this way. It is much more clear in the novel that Eleanor would like to go off with anyone that would have her. And so I'm not sure it's so much about sexuality as needing to belong. And so she's looking for anything. But yes, there is a gay theme that is running throughout that novel that Shirley Jackson would not speak to because at that time, the book wouldn't have received the wide reception that it did if she called it a, a queer story. But I think that subtext should always be read into what's going on here. It's a very valid take on what's going on in this house. Repression and and repressed desire specifically are the major themes. And it didn't turn out so well for that companion because even though she got the house, she was driven mad. And that didn't seem to happen too long ago that she basically, what's known as she walked up a spiral staircase and we watch her feet fall into frame. She hung herself and now the house has fallen to Sandership ownership and Mark Away, the anthropologist, is so happy that he has a legitimate haunted house 
to experiment with. And this does feel very 1950s, 1960s. Like, I'm going to prove that all those ghosts, that's just science we don't know yet. Yeah, I, which I love as a theme. It's what I wanted to do with my life. Like, if some people wanted to be an astronaut. Some people... You want to be a ghost hunter on TV? I feel like I always did. And again, that was a big part of the appeal of Poltergeist was that, oh, wow, there are people that can be educated that study the supernatural like, and can commune with ghosts and prove that it's true. What a great career. I can understand and I emulate Markaway's passion at the idea of, oh, goody, this is my thesis that's going to make me famous. I'm going to take Hill House and prove to the world that yeah, it's not just about kooks and crackpots and fake mediums. There's legitimate paranormal activity. Are there people who really do this shit in real life other than like ghost hunters shows on TV? Even Markaway is an anthropologist. He said the closest he could get to in being legitimate is studying dead men. You know, like that's culturally speaking, I'm looking at dead men. But no, I would say if you have a degree in parapsychology, you probably got it in the mail. You got ripped off. Yeah, it's not real. And again, it's a fantasy. But maybe there's certainly what I've been reading is for the younger generation, there's been a huge uptick in communing with psychics and horoscopes. Yeah, astrology's back in. Ugh, what's your sign, baby? People are really always hoping that there is new ways of looking at the world, that the realistic take, the reductiveness of logic is just not fun enough. We don't want to live in that world. We want to believe that, yeah, we go on after death, that there are ways of communicating with the dead. Who wouldn't want to be Mark Away and doing this? Again, it's easy for me to get into this movie, despite its obvious old-fashioned nature, just because I want to be him. Does he get a good rate at renting this place or where does he get his funding from? Uh, uh, I, again, I'm not exactly sure. Part of it, I think, is he's charming, right? Like he's flirting with yeah. this old woman. And I don't know if I believe this actor, but Richard Johnson said he was this close to being James Bond. That it was down to him and Sean Connery. Oh, he's going to be the OG Bond. Connery got Dr. No and he got the haunting and that's how it shook out. <laughs> and he said it was okay. Like he was happy for Sean. Sean made that series what it was. He would have been too stuffy and proper in the role and wouldn't have been what people like about James Bond. Not hit enough hair on his chest. But he is working these ladies. And obviously a big theme in this movie is that he's going to use his sex appeal to emotionally manipulate this woman that probably does not need to be outside of her home, that she clearly is damaged and grieving and not ready for this. Yeah, because Mark Way, he's got a list of people he's going to invite there. Apparently, they're all going to have experience with the paranormal. We're, we're going to find out about Eleanor, but at first, she's just fighting over this car that she owns half of. Yeah, this was an interesting place to go to, is this mentally unstable, destitute woman. Well, I guess she's not destitute because she screams about how she pays half the bills. She rents a living room. She sleeps on a couch. From her sister, Carrie, by the way. I do think that is something that Stephen King took. We will learn that Eleanor, the reason why she's being invited was, as a child, she lived in a house where rocks fell from the sky for two days. That is the backstory of Stephen King's Carrie as well. That's all I could think about, having read that book several times, was the stones that were in I think it was in the remake or at least the miniseries. Yeah, it was one of, one of, one of them because that sounds familiar. It wasn't in the good one. Yeah. And more importantly, she had a domineering mother who wouldn't allow her to believe that it was psychic phenomenon. 
and shamed her. And again, maybe it wasn't real. Maybe it was all in Eleanor's head or difficult to say, but that is why this woman probably hasn't left the house much since childhood and why she was comfortable taking care of her mother all in this time. And, and I do just want to call out because for some of our listeners, this may be their first film from the 60s they're watching and things were different there. And I don't know what else Julie Harris did, but going from Markaway, who's so calm and collected, and like you said, he's got that James Bond suave affair. But we go to Eleanor, who... Wow, this is big. This acting that's going on. It, it is so crazy. Theatrical, yes. She's from the stage. Are you shocked? Are you shocked she's a Broadway star? No, that makes sense. <laughs> makes total sense. <laughs> oh, that explains a lot. It does. It does. And you got to be willing to go there. I don't blame you if you hate it. It's a certain style that is really over time. It's really rich. It's a cheesecake with an extra layer on top. And cream soda to wash it down. It's a lot. It was reminding me of some really broad, bad sitcom performances I've seen. <laughs> it's broad, but no more broad than the rest of the movie. You know, where acting really becomes problematic is when the actor is doing something entirely different from what everyone else is doing. And fortunately, this movie is big, so I feel like I don't mind. And this is an overdramatic portrayal of a wallflower who is hoping to break free. Yeah, I'll be able to get into it later on, but it was a big jolt from where we were and go, oh yeah, this is how people used to act in film. But eventually, like, I'll see what this character is doing and makes a little bit more sense, but it is a lot when she first shows up on screen. It's got a bit of psycho in it, right? Yeah, all that stuff about Mother. There's that, but when you think about Janet Lee in the first 40 minutes of that movie, she makes a jailbreak. She steals from a bank and she goes on a road trip on this fanciful idea that she's going to go meet her man and somehow have a happily ever after, it feels about as well thought out as Eleanor getting a letter from a parapsychologist saying, we need you to come to this house and her being like, well, if I can just steal the family car, then I'll be a new person that I get to leave all the caretaking that I did behind and be, and be someone that I admire. Yeah, she's just raving about how she needs the car to go on vacation. I want to go on vacation because what? She has taken care of her mother for like 11 years, I think they say, as she was dying. Yeah. And the mother just died two months before. So she really, again, still grieving. Her whole life has been wrapped up in this disciplinarian who took all of her. And now what? She's going to go to a haunted house? This is going to be quite a marriage. It's weird that she doesn't quite know why she's going. And yet seeing that A, she doesn't seem all there in the head and B, her current living situation with her sister, I understand why she'd get a strange letter in the mail saying come here and she would just race there. But we needed a scene of Mark away going and recruiting Theo and going and recruiting Eleanor. Yeah, there was a Theo at home scene that they just decided not to include. I think the original thought was, you know, he was inviting a lot of people and maybe it would be fun to have more people there. But ultimately, this is the story about Eleanor. Nobody else will matter as much that she has... Well, not unlike Shirley Jackson, just to give you a little bit of background about her, she had dominating parents. When she finally broke away, she ended up marrying a man who was very controlling. She became agoraphobic, stayed in her house for much of the end of her life, became fat and senile and crazy. And so she traded one domineering figure for another. This novel is an acknowledgement of that, that she sees herself trying to escape the control of a parent and winding up in, well, a different kind of horror. I wish this movie didn't focus 
so much on Nell and that it was more of an ensemble piece. I find Theo to be the most interesting of the characters, but Mark Way is supposed to be leading this expedition. But no, you're right. This is Nell, 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 Nell. Yeah, it lives or dies by her, and you ultimately have to accept she is the reason. It, it was asked of Shirley Jackson, does she think there's really ghosts there? And her answer was you know, a little tenuous, but basically what I got out of it was that it takes two to tango. Yes, there is Hugh Crane, but he represents the drama that's already in Nell's head. And so if it were Theo and Markaway and Luke without Nell, I don't think they would have been able to engage the ghost the way that Nell does. Nell brings the hue out of the house and vice versa. And Stuart, you started off saying this doesn't necessarily need to be scary as a haunted house film. And as Eleanor or Nell is pulling up to the house, I do like the atmosphere they set. Because again, we're not going to get ghosts or skeletons or anything, but you have these caretakers, the, the Dudleys, Mrs. Dudley would say, Hey, I'll be here at 9 a.m. to make your breakfast because I don't get here until daylight's out. I'm gone by this time because I'm not going to be here when it's dark and the closest anyone gets to this place in the town. Like, I do all this atmosphere they're setting up as Eleanor is arriving at the house and being shown around. I thought the Dudleys would be a much bigger part of this movie than they are. They're just there to be harbingers and... No, they're just caretakers. Then they, they leave and I think they pop back up once in the middle, but they're really... I kind of thought at the end we'd find they were behind all of the problems. And here's the thing, the way I take them anyway, is, yeah, they lay it on thick, right? They're like, almost every line is just, I won't be here. Like, it's really <laughs> theatrical. I'll just put, use that word again. Like, very big, very broad. When Nell hears, it's horrific to her. She responds to it. She believes them. When she hooks up with Theo later and the same lines are being said, Theo is like laughing and being like, okay, sure, and making jokes about all of this. And so you realize that Nell is much more susceptible to everything that is scary about this house, that she is going to lean in to the horror while other people might miss it. And I think that goes back to what you're saying about the house and her bringing the worst of each other out. Like, if you just have her kind of mentality and you're told, oh, this is a haunted house and it's been here for 90 years and all these people have died. Even if none of that stuff's true, if you're in her mental state, you're going to play all that up and totally buy into whatever you're being told. Well, Theodora is one of the first lesbian characters I can think of on screen. Like she's so hip and trendy. She doesn't even have a last name. She won't be using any male name to define herself. She's just Theodora making this glamorous entrance. She does go by Theo, which was the name of... Bill Cosby's son on The Cosby Show. Sure, yes. Which, again, is code for she seems awfully masculine in certain ways, but a glamour girl as well, and clearly showing a lot of interest in Nell. Now, in the novel, I feel like it's reversed. I feel like it's Nell really into her, and she's like, I like to be the center of attention, and I, I like that you are crushing on me. But when Nell is asking if she could go home with her when all of this is over and they could run an antique shop together. It's like, nope, you're a clingy stalker and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Here, I feel like it's the opposite. I feel like Theo is jealous that Nell becomes the star, that Nell is the only one that is bringing out the supernatural elements, even though she's the ESP one. And so she resents the celebrity. And yeah, I think she wouldn't mind a tumble in the bedroom either. Yeah, we find out that 
Theo, she read 19 out of 20 cards correctly. And my mind just went to that Ghostbuster yes. scene, that opening scene. I'm like, did Bill Murray quiz her? I don't know if this is legit. How legit is anyone here? Nell seems damaged. I don't know if rocks fell on her house. Or on her head, yeah. Yeah. She's been through shit, and I know that she is going to see ghost in every corner and again she gets spooked by her own reflection in a mirror multiple times same mirror she never gets tired of it yeah i noticed a lot of mirror stuff going on <laughs> she's always like ah me but yes the other ones is theo legitimate you might be inclined to want to believe it because that's the kind of movie you think you're watching but ultimately i think this movie is at least the filmmakers have said in commentary that the way they saw it was that everything is happening in Eleanor's head, that there is no haunting. It's all psychological projection. I thought that was so the way the movie was going. Since so much of it happens to Nell and only Nell and in Nell's point of view, even when others hear things, I'm thinking Nell somehow is the imagining of it. And it's contagious. You can spook other people, right? Like my mom woke me up one time and said, there's a killer in the house. And like, I believed her. Like you end up adopting if someone intensely has a belief of negativity, it wouldn't surprise me that could rub off on Theo, could even rub off on the others, the cynical ones. But we do see things like happening early on where I, I don't know if you could totally say it's all because of Nell. And this is why at points in this film, I thought, oh, they're doing some kind of experiment with Nell. The, like human psychology. They're all torturing her. Mm -hmm. Gaslighting her? Yeah, gas. Oh, there's definitely one scene I'm like, oh, Theo just totally gaslit her. I totally thought that's where it's going. But when we see Markaway and Luke Sanderson, who is next in line to get this house, like they've even gotten lost in this house early on. Did you recognize Luke? I recognized him from West Side Story. I've seen that movie a number of times, but you're not going to see Dr. Jacoby in this young face. No, yeah, but it is for Twin Peaks fans. So oh. Fun to see Dr. Jacoby in an early role. I don't really remember him from West Side Story, but then again, I don't really remember. Neither do I. Yeah, I saw that once. Honestly, I may not. A lot of the people in West Side Story look the same, but when I saw him here, I'm like, oh yeah, that's how he looked in West Side Story. I think Wise just brought him over from that project. Totally. And Russ Tamblin even said, I didn't want to do this. This was like me doing a favor to that director, but it wasn't even a fun part. I'm the cynical one. I'm the one that doesn't want to believe in any of this. Really? I think he got the most giggles out of me. Like he's always commenting, is they're scared of some ghost. He's making a joke about, oh, I could sell that for this much money. I had fun with this character. Oh, agreed. I did too. I liked his very materialistic view of this. Here's the thing is he's our point of view character. Mm -hmm. Because you've got somebody who's dealt with ghosts, somebody who's investigating all of this and is supposedly really familiar with it, and someone with ESP, you've got to have a lay person to whom things are just explained. And so that's the real reason, story-wise, why he's here, is he is us. We're supposed to be skeptical about ghosts, and we're not supposed to know all of these terms like psychokinetic. They say we're psych psychokinesis? Uh, yeah, psychokinesis. Can but they say kinesis. It's so weird how they say it in this. <laughs> Yeah, he's British. Even though this is happening in America, I want to point out, they shot it in London and it's got all these British actors, but it is an American story. This is all happening in New England, so I'm not sure why it's so British. Well, New England? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's why I can identify with him is because he is, that's exactly what he's supposed to be to us. 
And of course, he's also here for story reasons because he's a Sanderson. He was next in line to inherit it when the old lady goes. And so, yes, everything to him is a potential, like, I can sell the library. I can look at these expensive dishes. And he doesn't want it to be a haunted house. Every time they hears that his house is deranged and vile and sick, he's like, no, that cuts down on the profits. I need this to be a really desirable Real estate. My favorite moment is when he goes into the library. He's like, I'm going to sell these books for a quarter apiece. Quarter apiece, yeah. <laughs> but is it obvious that nothing ever really happens? When you go into a movie called The Haunting, you're likely to believe that spirits are doing stuff. Shirley Jackson said there are ghosts, that she wrote it with the intent. This was a psychologically damaged woman interacting with, in a unhealthy relationship, codependent relationship with a ghost. But when things start, quote unquote, happening, what's your take? Is that banging the boiler room or is that banging Hugh Crane or more than likely Abigail as an 80 year old woman trying to call her companion for help? Yeah, we're told by Nell that her mother banged on the wall. Like, it's a real tragic story. She just couldn't take it anymore and just ignored her. And that's when she died. And so as I'm learning all these facts, I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing. And that's what's surprising me, how psychological this film is, is it's all this stuff going on in Nell's head being manifest. Now, whether others are experiencing that or not, that's to be debated. But yeah, early on, when you just hear that knocking and it seems like she's the only one that hears it and she'll run in and go try to find comfort with Theo and all that. but. I take it as she is somehow, wh whether there's ghosts and they're feeding off her energy, or this is just a psychological projection of what she's gone through. I'm reading it. It's all coming from her. If it is psychological, that banging is her mother telling her, don't do that. And so to your point, Jacob, if she is experiencing some kind of bi-curiosity or has been a closet lesbian and would like to jump in bed with Theo, it makes sense that she would hear mama say, stop. Yeah, my reading of her is she's so timid. She'll go either way. Like she, she just wants to be comforted after this 11 years of being tortured by her mom. So to me, and again, I feel like a major way to, of understanding the story is that it is, if nothing else, maybe we don't give it the words of uh, gay or straight, but it is about repression. This is a woman who yeah. has never been allowed to love or experience uh, companionship with anyone because her mom told her, Rocks are going to fall from the sky and the neighbors hate you and you have to serve me until the day I die. And she just is terrified of the world. Her sister didn't want to give up the car in part because, well, it's, a, it's the car that she needed to use. But it was also stated that mother wouldn't think that she would do well going out into the world. There's no one that believes that this woman can make it on her own. Why is that? Is it because they just didn't treat her well or is this a very damaged person that would do well to be institutionalized. I definitely think, you know, she's such damaged goods. Institutionalization or just slip a Xanax and a glass of wine. I don't know. She's still getting over the trauma of her mother's death. I, I think that maybe had this invitation come six months later, she might have been in a different headspace. And yet... Theo does have psychic abilities, maybe, arguable, but she seems pretty confident when she reads Nell's mind and says, you wanted your mother dead. That's actually, you're not sad that she's gone. You're so glad that you can finally get away. Yeah, which feels very honest. Like she may, it, 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 she, you probably don't need ESP to figure that. After 11 years of, of that banging and just that overbearing mom, like she didn't kill her. 
I moved back home four years ago and I'm not going to say I'm not there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's got to be hard work and there's got to be those dark times. So I I don't see that as some sin upon Eleanor. I, I think that's actually a very human reaction. And horror history note, just want to point out here, I think this is the first use of Sam Raimi cam when we get this banging (laughs) and suddenly the camera is zipping around on, yeah, like fun little wires and they use this anamorphic lens and speed up the film and what have you. It really does feel a a lot like the moments in Evil Dead where the demons are jumping around the cabin. Yeah, I appreciate that. Again, they're not going to have skeletons and stuff, but they're doing what they can to make this psychological haunting still feel like a fun haunted mansion. Let's face it. There's nothing in this house. Literally nothing in this house. (laughs) Nothing visual effects. There's going to be some sound effects, but... They make that door breathe. There's something visual there. All right, right, I'll give you that. There's a little bit of a door thing, but primarily this is people reacting to sound. Mm -hmm. And funny camera tricks. You you ever watch those Ghost Hunter shows? That's what those are. People reacting to sounds. I don't watch those Ghost Hunter shows. Ten minutes of one of those was all I could take. So this is why this movie's lack of escalation bores me. You want there to be a real ghost with like ectoplasm and blood and killing people. Not necessarily that, but something escalating. If you're going to start with banging... Don't just keep it banging the whole time. But again, that becomes the motif about Eleanor's guilt. It's very Edgar Allan Poe when, you know, he's hearing Telltale Heart. Yeah. For her, this is I'm being triggered. I'm being asked to think about taking a risk. And that scares me because mama would never let me. Arnie, you didn't find anything in the psychological profile or I thought there was a bit of a mystery. Like we're going to see a chalk writing on the wall. Help Eleanor come home. Like, again, I'm like, oh, is this some weird just trick? Because now I'm starting to realize, oh, this is all about Eleanor. Is like this a weird trick on her? Are they messing with her? There's a lot of things like that that intrigued me that kept me interested. I really thought she wrote that herself and blacked out that she did that. Yeah. And Shirley Jackson said that when she sleepwalks, she would write messages on the wall and would wake up and be like, wow, okay. So I think it was Shirley Jackson's idea that Eleanor did physically write it there. But does that mean that it came through her consciously? Was she trying to make people pay attention to her? Or was that the spirit working through her, using her because she's so vulnerable, because it can invade her mind? Worth debating. It's also worth pointing out that Theo's scene, that if they had kept it, might make you look at her. That it would have been her at her antique shop, fighting with her lesbian lover, writing in lipstick on the mirror, I hate you, and storming out. And so that you would see that she has a habit of writing nasty things on the wall. Because Theo, what you notice is this is about the time where she turns. Up to this point, she's, get your hair changed, I really like you, maybe you can come to my room. Certainly when the banging is happening, they're huddling together. But once Eleanor is singled out as the thing that the house wants, she's mad. She's like, no, I'm the pretty girl. I'm the one that everyone should look at. How dare you look at this mousy thing? How dare you give this attention when I'm in the room? She's jealous. Yeah, she definitely starts acting colder towards Eleanor. I noticed that because I guess Hugh doesn't want her. Right. How frustrating that the house and thus Markaway becomes less interested in a a person with genuine ESP powers, probably, maybe. Yeah, she seems to have a good read on what's on Eleanor's mind, but 
not much anybody else's. And again, does that mean that she just knows Eleanor's type, that she preys upon women that haven't come out yet? Who knows? But again, I, I like the fact that there's multiple layers of reading here. I like the idea that we are having the game of, is this psychological? Is this supernatural? Or some combination of the two. Certainly when we get to the greenhouse and there's a statue, I love the fact that they can't even decide what it is. Is it St. Francis curing the lepers? Yeah. Is it Crane's family? Or is it them? Like, is that Abigail actually looked like Mel? Is Luke the dog? I like that. Yeah, and they, they do this thing where they zoom in on one of the face of the statues. And again, I was waiting for that thing to like turn and move. But it just holds it there, which maybe makes it even creepier because there's just all this anticipation waiting for something to happen. Nell saw it moved, but it, we didn't see it move. Exactly. Yeah. At w one point there, they say things in the house move out of the corner of your eye. I was looking, but I never saw anything. And when you turn, you look. But yet the thing is, they don't change the statue. If the statue was in a different position, I went back and rewound. If they had move the statue a little bit, that would be eerie. Instead, you just have a bunch of paranoid people jumping at their own shadows. Right. Okay. You could say that, or you could say you can choose what you saw, depending on your inclination. But Mark Away himself is even, this is the point where he's like, you know, we can't have you hallucinating. My experiment will be invalidated if you start seeing shit that didn't happen. I need to be able to document stuff and you go into the library and smell smells about your mother's deathbed when nobody else can smell that, you're not a reliable narrator. I can't use you. You filling out these forms is not going to be helpful. Now, does he mention at all, I didn't rewatch the film, does he mention at all that he has a wife or is she right in thinking that he is single? He never mentioned it. What he says is she's clearly... The focus of the house. You're the thing that's going to make this haunting more visible. It's gravitating to you. It's using your name. You're the one hearing the banging. And yet, because I want this so badly, that could look like passion for you. When the truth is, I just want to be able to write my thesis. And so I think she confuses his scientific curiosity with genuine sexual interest. And that's on her. Like, maybe she's not worldly, maybe she should know more, but she couldn't possibly because she spent her whole life cooped up with her mom. But I don't think that he intentionally misled her romantically. I think that she saw more in his advances, but I also think he played with it. He might have used his sexuality in some ways to encourage her to keep going. Hard to say. I never thought Eleanor needed to go to the funny farm, but she, yeah. She's not worldly. I think that's a good way to put it. She does not have a, a mature sense of development because of her upbringing with her mom and having to take care of her. So she reads things wrong. She's not the one with the ESP. So, yeah, I think she takes Markaway's interest in her because, oh, look at all this stuff manifesting. That's going to get me that funding I need as actual interest for her. What about the cold spot? Does that prove anything? Just probably need to put up some new shingles on that part of the roof. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking bad insulation, but no, I mean, I get what they're going for there. I've seen a lot of haunted house movies. I've never really seen the cold spot as a symptom before. Is it a common thing? I don't feel like I've seen a lot of haunted house movies, but this, I was going to ask Stuart, is this where this originated from? Because I always feel like there's 
a spot where you feel it's cold and there's a heart of the house. Is this where it comes from? To me, I always think of poltergeist in the closet, right? Carol Ann got sucked in there. And Nell is like a grown-up Carol Ann, right? She's not any more sophisticated than a six-year-old girl in some respects. So there's a lot of similarities I see to them finding the heart of the house and that it's these scary doors that lead to the nursery, to the very place where Abigail grew up from six years old to 80 years old. That's where the cold heart of the house is. Yeah, feels important, significant, and something you'll always want to have in a haunted house movie. There needs to be a center to the madness, to the monster, to the paranormal activity. And if the reading is none of this is really happening outside of Eleanor's head, it can still be scared with all these stories about this house. The fact that you're standing outside a room where a girl basically laid from the ages of six to 80, (laughs) like that's creepy. I'd probably feel cold outside that room too. Not only that, but above the door, did you read the sign, honor thy mother and father? Again, that guilt complex. This is a woman that's only done that. So and it has made her heart very cold. Now she's hoping that Barkaway is going to warm it. And again, he seems happy to keep this going. He's like, girls, go kiss and make up and go paint each other's <laughs> nails and, and sleep together now. You're now going to be in the same bed. <laughs> and we get, I think, maybe the most famous scene in the movie. I do think it is. The most successful at being creepy. We have the second night where we're, it's not just banging. We're going to see a face in the wall. We're going to hear somebody proselytizing and a child crying. This works. This was creepy. Because we'd already had the banging before this one, I knew there was nothing there. And so it was a little bit frustrating. Here's the thing. Is this going to be creepy? Depends 100% on the actress playing Nell and how her reaction to it is going to then make us feel because the sound itself is not going to be scary to me. I need somebody in there to tell me why it's scary. And unfortunately she's been such a drama queen in this regard. Do you have any sympathy for her? No. Okay. Say that. Yeah. That's where I would say it lies in. Maybe you don't quote unquote like her, I don't think I'd want her to be my friend. I certainly wouldn't want her to come home with me. But I know what, you know, it's like to be neglected. I, the, the fact that she hasn't been able to, to live her life, that she's repressed. I can have some empathy for the fact that she's trying to manage that in the worst possible place she could be right now. Yeah, the over-the-top stage acting is working better for me at this point because I'm like, okay, she's a spaz that's never learned how to deal with the world. Okay, she's just going to freak out at everything. And yeah, I feel bad for her at this point. The, the, these, I don't know, Arnie, man, you ever hear child noises in the middle of the night? That's scary. Like my girls were up one time and I heard them talking, didn't know, think they would be up. Oof. Wow. And, and again, her, uh, the house is hurting a child. Think about that opening scene. We saw the Hugh Crane bring his dead wife into the house, make the daughter watch as he lays it out, and then just starts reading from the Bible. I think that's what she's hearing. I, you can definitely hear a man that seems to be reading scripture, and you hear a child crying. And it seems like the way that Hugh deals with sorrow is repression and, and to turn to dogma. And that has been the tragedy of both Abigail and for now. Yeah, we'll find out later that what Hugh illustrated the seven deadly sins for Abigail, which that was her nursery book. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Which aren't straight from the Bible, but they have biblical roots. We talked about that in seven. Yeah, it's really demented. Yeah. And of course, Luke's the one that finds that book and he's like looking at the lust or whatever. We know he's lustful. It's kind of a funny, unrequited love triangle. He wants the lesbian. The lesbian wants Nell. And Nell wants the 
scientist who, again, only wants her in the way that it will help his own work. And so nobody is getting the love that they seek. They all have a certain amount of lust in their heart. And maybe you think they're all going to be damned. Did you think they were all dead meat? Did you think anybody was dead meat? I came to realize this is all centered on Nell, that she is our protagonist. So if someone's going to die, she's going to be the human sacrifice, I figured. I didn't think people were going to start dropping off. I, I figured, again, it's all about her. And so if someone has to die for this house, it would be her. But I wasn't sure anyone would have to die because I'm just still thinking of a haunting. Like, just run away from the house and then it stops haunting you. Enough time had passed with nobody dying that I knew nobody was going to that I felt nobody was going to die. Yeah, it wasn't that kind of movie. There's a moment where I thought, oh, it's going to become that movie, but it doesn't go there. We'll, we'll get there soon. Mm -hmm. First, away, first, Mark Away has a breakthrough with a harp that's playing itself barely. Yeah, if all of this is supposed <laughs> to be coming from Nell's head, how do you explain the harp? We never see a play, though. Yeah, I get This seems very desperate. This seems like what you do when you've convinced yourself you want there to be, like, something happening. Like, I used to be in plays at a, a theater company, and, and they told ghost stories about a certain room. And I remember trying to tell myself that I had a ghost encounter. And you just want it to be true, right? Because the wind blows on some strings. All of a sudden, ooh, this is meaningful. This is happening. And I'm on the verge of learning that the preternatural world is going to be normalized, that supernatural things are happening. You, you want it so bad, you lie to yourself. You convince yourself that what you're seeing is paranormal activity. Magnets were magic once, and now they're <laughs> fast and furious plot points. Still magic. <laughs> were there even more magic somehow? <laughs> But Nell does actually ask him in this moment, do you think this is all in my mind? Are you in my mind? She's having a psychological break. Yeah. Like she's like, maybe none of you are real. Like that is a moment that you put someone like on the padded wagon and say bye-bye. Okay, if you don't think I'm real, then I don't think you're in a psychological state to help. And it's Markaway's sin, flaw, ambition that really causes everything that's going to go wrong in the climax. He should be taking more consideration, but we know how science is, certainly in movies from the 50s and 60s. It sacrifices people to get answers. It creates monsters. It's always the bad guy. And this is about the time when his wife shows up. Grace is going to blow in on the cab and change the mood. Nell is not happy about this. And we hadn't even seen Grace at all in the film. Nope. So this is blowing in out of nowhere. Yeah, she's just coming to warn him that, hey, the press heard about this. Like, it's going to blow up. We got to get out of here. It's going to hurt your reputation that people are finding out you're this nerdy. Like, you are an anthropologist. People like you because you are a scientist. Yeah, do anthropologists have reputations to be ruined? I mean, I think within the academic circles, absolutely. As someone that has worked at a university, you can't believe the egos that go on. But... To the outside world, are they celebrities? No. I Again, yeah, TMZ going to give you a story about an anthropologist? I don't think so. I doubt it. But again, Grace is a very big change, maybe the biggest change from the novel. In the novel, she blows in as a full-on, I'm the real medium here. And she's got her planchettes and her tarot cards. And she even brings like another man. And they're like all reading the tea leaves about what's happening in this house and, and basically making up and ruining the scientific investigation that Markaway is no longer able to document anything because she's demanding that she can hear all the answers from voices nobody else is hearing. She's this charlatan that's ruining 
the project. And here, I think it's more wise to have her the cynic who wants to believe in her husband's work and the way that she's going to do it is by sleeping alone in the nursery. Where she doesn't even know what that means. She just is, Nell says it once and she's, okay, this is what I'm doing and you will not talk me out of it. And instead of staying with her, everybody else in the house decides, okay, we're going to go downstairs, have fun in the nursery. I'd rather sleep in the purple parlor too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a time where men didn't necessarily sleep in the same bed as their women. And certainly you didn't always show that in movies. But the fact that if the husband's unhappy, Markaway has said numerous times now that cynicism will get you in trouble, that the paranormal will get you when you don't believe. And so Grace is at real risk because she is skeptical. Because she doesn't know the dangers she's insisting on walking into, he should be very concerned and gets her to agree that she's going to have the door open, not that the doors ever stay open, and like call for help if needed. But I would think that he would want to be there. It's a plot convenience that he's downstairs when the doors start warping. Whatever is in the house goes after Grace. And I thought when Grace disappeared that this is when we start getting our murder mystery. Like, I, I figured, okay... Nell has gone totally crazy and she's going to start, here's this woman she's jealous of and mark away. Like we're going to get a whole staircase scene. Like I thought, oh, there, that's where he's going to go, but it doesn't go there, but that becomes a big mystery. Where did Grace go? I'm still not sure I understand. Yeah. Again, it's where you could make the argument that paranormal things have to be happening because characters can't account for where they go or, or why. It's a big sprawling house that doesn't have right angles. So you could get lost. Yeah, it's the weird architecture of the house that throws everyone off. Yeah, you could always have an explanation either way you want to read it. But the author herself felt like she wanted you to understand there is a ghost manipulating some of this. It's okay and acceptable to say that, yes, the Hugh Crane specifically, the oppressive father figure that insists on loyalty of Abigail and makes her feel guilty that her mother is dead, is doing the same thing to Nell. That's definitely a reading you could have. But director Robert Wise says, nope, it's all coming out of Nell's head and everyone else is just influenced by her level of dementia. Yeah, my reading was probably 10% Hugh and 90% Nell, but there's some ghost involved here. I think it needed to commit one way or the other is what I said. I think that too much is being seen by other people for it all to be Nell. And there's no inkling given, which would have been perhaps a fun way to go, that Markway was staging things to test results. But because other people are hearing so much, I feel like it can't be in her head 100%. And yet it's so much just her at this getting involved that it just becomes a frustrating stuck in the middle. The characters aren't interesting enough for me to really give a shit and look that much deeper. Okay. All right. That's fair. You don't care about Nell. It seems to be what I'm hearing is I don't want to know Nell whether she's crazy or haunted. It don't matter to me. No, if the movie were to spell this out a little more, I might find her a more interesting character. But to be honest, the performance is so off-putting. Right. You're not sympathetic. No. I kind of wish she'd fallen off the balcony, which I think was, again, a drama thing for attention. And I don't know that any ghost was pushing her. But she had suicidal ideation for a while now. We had an earlier scene where she had gone to get air. Everyone else was in the library. She never even saw that spiral staircase. She, I don't know how she knew it was there. Maybe she saw it peeked in, but yeah, she had just seen the tower and knew that the companion had died, had hung herself in that way. She was talking even then in one of her interior mini voiceover monologues, she was talking about doing the same thing. So it had been an idea in her mind. 
You don't think that she really was going to do it? Was that even what she was trying to do? Kill herself? Yeah, if you're going with an ambiguous reading, was she possessed by the old companion because she's climbing up that staircase like the companion did who hung herself? Like, I, I did wonder how much is she in control of her own self at this point or are the ghosts or voices in her head in full control? Has she had a total break from reality now? And I feel like the ghost of Hitchcock is floating around. At the beginning, her car drive felt like Marion Crane and Psycho going up this spiral staircase has a real lot of vertigo in that she's repeating the pattern of a woman who died mysteriously. And yeah, she seems to be out of her body on one level or maybe just desperate. Again, everyone wants to send her back. She's lied to them. She told them that she had this nice apartment and lived on her own and was an independent woman. But really going back means going back and living on Carrie's couch and being made fun of by her daughter. And I can't live like that anymore. If this is the last stop and there's nowhere else, I'd rather die than go back and be that feeble person from before. Her attachment to the house Made me think that the others should have kicked her out much earlier, too. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, it's irresponsible that Marque has allowed this to go on. He only did it for his own vain, glorious pursuit of science and recognition. And that's too bad because, yeah, she's far gone now. She's going full crazy now doing the sound of music. The hills are alive, spinning around the statue, claiming, talking to the statue of Ukraine and saying collaboratively, they have killed Grace. That, like, this missing woman isn't just disappeared. They got her. And that, that's what she wanted. That this woman will not stand in my way of Marque, and she will not stand in my way of importance. She may be confessing that she killed Grace, but we did briefly see her up on that staircase. Like, we see a flash of her face. I don't know if she's a ghost now. I don't know. She almost looks like a wild woman. Like, <laughs> she's gone crazy herself. I don't know what's happening with that brief glimpse we get of her. How come nobody went back up and checked that trap door a second time? It is weird. Yeah, we're told that Nell got up to that platform. That staircase is going to fall down. Yeah, I think that's what it is. That the, the spiral staircase is shaking. Nell's about to jump off. Marquet risks everything to go rescue her. And as they're going down, Marquet's already started down again. He couldn't have seen the trap door open and Grace poke her head out, hee-haw style. But <laughs> Nell did and fainted. Which I can only presume right into the arms of Marquet, and then he had to carry her down. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But somehow she saw it, and he didn't find out until she woke up five minutes later. And they don't believe a word she says, right? At this point, Nell, you're going home. Everything you say is goofy, and we don't believe you. Do they not believe her, or do they just think she needs to get out of there because it's dangerous for her? I couldn't tell. I think there's an element of that. I think Marquet thinks he's done wrong. I think Theo would love to suddenly become the object of, of affection and suddenly become important. She's jealous. For anyone? <laughs> yeah. And the interesting thing about Luke, he hasn't done much other than sneer at things. But I think at this point, he's concerned. He's seen enough when that door bent in and all of that. He dropped his liquor bottle. I think he's convinced that this is a haunted house. He's ready to sell it cheap. I remember he did say that the Marquet of like, real cheap, it could be yours. Yeah, so this ending, I'm really curious to see what you guys think of her driving away and her, again, voiceover and driving the car into the tree. The way the actress plays it, I definitely think she's just crazy and drove herself into a tree. Yeah, my reading is that she has lost her mind. Like, for everything that she's had to confront, that guilt and whatever psychological torture 
being in this house is put upon her, how that's played on her fears or whatnot. Yeah, I, I think it does drive her to do what she does. I don't think she's possessed or that she's trying to get out of the way of grace at the last second, but that, yeah, it's suicide. We see that she actively resents the idea that Luke's coming with her. And when he stops to go get the gate key, because it's locked, she takes that as an opportunity to drive forward. Now, knowing the gate's locked, we can only presume she's driving into a head-on collision. The house won't let me leave. Yeah, because you don't have the gate key. But notice what she does there, too. At a certain point, she's testing the house. She's not holding the steering. She's going down that road. She lets go of it. It's almost like she's testing the house. Of, Do you want me or not? I'm giving myself to you. And it starts going by itself. And then you see relief. You're like She's like, ah, something finally will happen. That was me too. Yeah, finally something will happen. Suddenly, like someone wants me. I'm actually wanted by some other person. I can't remember if it was only in the book or if it's in this movie. But her most painful admission is that wherever she goes, she's not wanted. And so it's profound that this stupid haunted house and this 90-year-old ghost wants to kill her and keep her around forever. That a sense of permanence, even though it's a dysfunctional household, she finally gets to belong to a family. Did the steering wheel turn on its own? I didn't notice the wheel moving when she took her hands off. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just a little moment. But yeah, at a certain point, it feels, oh, that's paranormal. That's not her doing it. At least that's my interpretation that you're asking me whether she killed herself or not, I think it was a collaborative effort. She was ready to die, and she was hoping the house was going to take her, and the house said, absolutely, and coughs up Grace at the same time she's going into the tree. Yeah, Grace pop out. I guess it's supposed to plant a question. Did she turn into the tree to dodge her? They'll definitely have that conversation, this little group here, but no, that was never my reading of it. Yeah, or like, since I can't have Mark away, I'll have the house. You know, like she accepts that in... In that romantic triangle, Grace will always win. The wife wins. And so I have to just settle for being important to Hill House. Maybe she's even happy. That was the thing that Theo wished for her. And I think that was legitimate, even though she was rather spiteful and mean to her sometimes. I think she genuinely wanted this woman to be happy. And maybe as she's reading the final passage, walking alone at Hill House is better than being at home, caring for her dying mother. I guess Luke doesn't go through with burning the the house down and salting the earth you salt the earth so nothing grows there i think you can still build another house on salt there's something about salt and ghosts though you do like the salt circle they can't get in there yeah she did throw the salt over her shoulder earlier yeah she's superstitious yeah mm -hmm. yeah they had worked in salt before so yeah i don't know if that's something in the nursery book we could read about dealing with uh sins and ghosts and what have you but yeah it feels like a scientific tool we could use to counterbalance the supernatural and the superstitious salt i feel like ronnie you're gonna be throwing a lot of salt at this movie let's find out <laughs> yes jacob stewart do you recommend a haunting jacob yeah this one surprised me i went in with admittedly low expectations like an old horror and finger quotes film like it's not gonna be scary it's gonna be goofy and silly and that's Again, plastic skeletons being thrown out of closets. That's what my expectations were. And then, yeah, we get this character, Eleanor, with this real, real big acting. I'm like, okay, this is all those tropes of old films that just, we, we don't do this anymore. We've learned from this. We moved on. But at the same time, there's all these really artistic shots, like every once in a while throughout the film that like really grab my attention. 
And, and so I, as I sat through this film, I really saw those biases go away and I was surprised that we were getting a psychological horror film. I just, that was not my ex expectation for a 1963 haunted house movie. And so again, the acting is pretty dated at times, like just heads up warning and there's nothing scary in this horror movie. Like it's, it's not about that. And so if, again, you guys listening, you know what you like, but for me, the shock was how sophisticated this one was, that it was a psychological horror film where, yeah, it's all about Eleanor and what's going on in her head and working through that repression and, and those bad relationships with her sister and mother and all that stuff I found really interesting. Like I would be interested in sitting through this a second time to really pay attention to who's perceiving what and parse that out. Is this all in Eleanor's head and that? So for, for me, that that is a recommend that I'd be willing to sit down with this old movie and, and watch it again because there's a lot going on in it. So yeah, a, a solid recommend for The Haunting. It was a surprise for me. Stuart. I floored. I, to paraphrase the monologue, I figured I walked through Hill House alone. I did not think that anyone else would appreciate this journey. Glad to hear that you did, Jacob. Glad that you want to see it again because you're going to see it two more times. We're doing a whole <laughs> retrospective here. We got to do the 1999 remake. We got to do the Netflix miniseries. But just thinking about this one, sophisticated is a good word for it. It is old-fashioned in lots of ways, but it's just modern enough to take on that psychological reading that you expect from more sophisticated, more modern horror movies. It's, it's on the edge. It's, again, writing the blueprint that we would see done again in The Shining or Poltergeist, where the relationships and the structure of the family influence and inform how the haunting is going to happen. Let's not even call it horror. Let's call it gothic melodrama. I feel like what's cool about this movie is it's got one foot in the horror genre, and certainly that's where Spielberg and Stephen King would take it, but it's also got a foot in like literary ghost stories that your high school English teacher wanted you to read. Jane Eyre, Scarlet Letter, that romantic 19th century shit that, again, I wouldn't have wanted to see back when I loved and was watching Poltergeist and The Shining in the 80s, but now kind of appreciate that this is a hybrid, that this is both an old-fashioned movie and the template by which all modern haunted house movies will be measured. It's homework. I, to use that metaphor, we often do. We are going back to a time to basically appreciate what is being brought into the genre. It is a, a homework assignment. But if you like the subject matter, I don't think you're going to mind learning the history of the tropes, both in terms of its technical achievements. The first use of Sam Raimi cam, I'm going to argue, there's some great zipping around. They built dollies and stuff and put cameras on wires in ways that it really, it moved in ways that would have been very jarring and off-putting for audiences in 1963. And I think visually, this movie has been inspirational. And again, the subject matter, the idea that there's a psychological read of this, I think that, yeah, give The Haunting a, a look. It's maybe not as great as I remember, but if you're a fan of Haunted Houses, you got to see it. Even if you don't like it, I'm going to argue, going to see it, you will probably be moved by it, maybe not scared by it, but it's a recommend. Moved by it? Really? Yeah, I think ghost stories are sad. I mean, I think the one thing that defines a ghost story oftentimes is that the tragedy of the situation is more important than how many times you got scared. Think of Sixth Sense and how many times people say they cried. Like, it's sad that Nell, no one loved her. It is the meat. Well, I can definitely say I was unmoved. And yes, I 
do think that the biggest problem with me in this movie is its age. It has awful audio. Audio? I felt like the sound design was pretty clever. All the growling through the door. I had trouble understanding the dialogue. It was staticky. It was overmodulated at times. It just didn't have clean dialogue. Yes, the sound effects were good, very good. The actual hearing of the words of what the people were saying was not as well done. And the stilted acting. When I turned this on within 15 minutes, I'm like, oh God, this is just like the stereotype of every ever. <laughs> I can't disagree with that. There's, and some of the musical choices too, horrible. Oh yeah. Yeah. When I just think about movies more from the 50s, but this was very early 60s, this is what I think of. And think about what Wise did before and after. West Side Story. The Sound of Music, both strong recommends from me. Movies I've watched multiple times. I can't even count the number of times The Sound of Music I've watched. Really? See, I'd watch this more than either one of those. <laughs> both Sound of Music is a movie you like? Very much so. Okay, I've, I can't believe in anything anymore. I know nothing. I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't know the world. I couldn't imagine you, you standing for singing Nazis. When I got my home theater, that was the first movie. Like... That's the movie wow. I wanted to wow. experience. I had a family Damn. over. You were a complicated individual, Arnie Carvalho. <laughs> but I look at those movies and their amazing sound and music and the fact that they were in color and had performances that, yes, felt theatrical, but didn't feel overwrought in this way of Nell. And I wonder what happened in between those two that he had to go back to black and white. And such a small cast versus the very large productions of those other two movies. Black and White's a deterrent for you? You would have preferred a color movie? He wanted to know how purple the purple parlor was. It just makes the movie feel even older than it is. It just makes me keep thinking of the 50s films. And it just has, again, the score, the acting of those 50s films. And you keep saying to me, this is the progenitor of ghost movies. And yeah, it wasn't. Exactly the first, as you mentioned, William Castle got there. Mm -mm, no, yeah. But I can only take you at your word that it's the progenitor, but it is steeped in such a style that it doesn't really make it palpable. And it doesn't illuminate anything I've seen in current films. Like you mentioned how you found that poltergeist when you were watching some of these other haunted house films, you saw, oh, the stuff you thought Spielberg and... Maybe Hooper did in Poltergeist wasn't as original as you thought. It was callbacks. It was homages. But there's nothing I saw in this movie that made me think, I really now need to reevaluate that uh, Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. It may have been a skeleton for him in that we're going to have bumps, we're going to have noises, we're going to have strange whose hand am I holding, but that does fall right into the homework line. The problem is, I didn't care for the character enough to go on a psychological journey. As far as scares go, if you are the type of person, listener, finds the thought of a spoon banging on pots in a kitchen scary, then this movie is for you, because that is the sound. Would that scare you if you just heard that and you knew no one should be down there doing that? Any noise unexpected is scary to me. And again, I would argue it's not always about being scared. Sometimes it's about... Yeah, the gothic tragedy of it all. I get thinking of no. If it's a horror movie, fright should be part of it. 
Yeah, but not always. Again, if you say that, then that's going to really limit how many horror movies. This is a G-rated movie from 1963. It's not going to scare you. But I do think that it's more stark, and there are a few scenes that work in ways that feel modern. And I do feel like, again, you could it can move you. It, you can feel something from it. But intense fear, probably not going to happen. Let me again reiterate my biggest compliment for this film. Its camera work is far better than I had ever thought it would be. It has really inventive shots like the camera going up the spiral staircase. Those were times when this movie made me go, that's pretty cool. But by and large, let me tell you what this movie did. I have seen 1999's The Haunting. I chalk it up as one of the worst movie experiences of my life. You do? But after seeing this, I'm like, maybe that 99 one ain't so bad. But for this, I'd not recommend. Well, I'm doubly surprised. I, I figured a Yondabot action movie in which Spielberg is directing him to put more excitement into it. I figured that definitely could be, yeah, an improvement over this movie for you. And maybe even one that you didn't think was the worst movie of all time at the very least. I'm surprised you have such vividly awful memories of Haunting 1999, given all the talent. Saw it once in 1999. I was cited i mean liam neeson's second big movie of 99 the director of speed and twister is going to do that in a haunted house yeah and Catherine zeta jones i was very into her at the time owen wilson i mean yes yeah, somehow i feel like this one's going to be more dated than this 1963 <laughs> one i think you might be right i have very vague memories but i know that there's a plot twist in which we learn what the ghost is and it's not psychological. Let me just put it that way. It's the opposite of psychological. I had thought before watching this that I was dreading the 99 one the most, but the 63 one's making me look forward to it. So not recommend for 63, but fingers crossed for 99. <laughs> I'm surprised you're so passionate. I do, I do want to remind you, Legend of Hell House was a mild recommend for you. I agree. It was, felt more modern than this and had more death than this one. The fact that there's no 10 little Indians bit, Reese disappears for 15 minutes of the movie. Like, you want life or death stakes. Just again, it feels walking in place. I needed something to progress beyond Nell's, oh my God, there's a roach in the corner face that she puts on for half the movie. Okay, here's the good news. This movie wasn't exactly an adaptation of Shirley Jackson, and none of the other ones are either. Like, they're all a bit different from one another. I've already spoiled that Haunting 1999 has a different tack on what's uh, possessing the house. And certainly when we get to the Netflix show, there are a lot of different characters to focus on. None of them are like Nell. So reason to hope for better things in the future. But that's not what we're doing next week. We're going to Take it off from haunted houses because there is, yet again, feels like every month we got a new one, a superhero movie we got to run out and cover. Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings or something. I can only say that their last poster gave me really hope that there's going to be two things in this movie I love. I don't know if either of them will be Shang-Chi, but there's going to be some stuff in this movie that I think will make me smile. And I definitely know we're going to have a lot to talk about next week 
And Jacob, I'm looking to you. I've read a couple of comics with Shang-Chi in them, which is better than I can say for Guardians when that movie came out. I better go read some because I don't think I've ever read a comic <laughs> for Shang-Chi. I've read Iron Fist. That was the white boy version. Iron Fist. Yes, it was. The cultural appropriation version, which you couldn't get away with today, I guess. More because Netflix version was so bad, no one wants to touch it. <laughs> but all of the above. Yeah, let's. I can't say I'm excited either. But hey, Marvel has a track record of usually putting out okay-ish things, even when I don't like them. I've liked the martial arts I've seen in the trailers. Like, it, I didn't get that with Snake Eyes. Maybe Chomchi will give it to me. Did you see my super cut of the trailers? They're the same. Yeah, every trailer's the same today. And before we go, we have an all-new giveaway this week. And this one is really new. Our friends at Paramount have hooked us up with five digital download codes to Snake Eyes. Hey, I've seen that one. Didn't that just come out? It's already available for digital? Wow. Welcome to the new model, yeah. <laughs> you don't see it that first week. It's going to be out <laughs> digital in a couple. It won't be out on Blu-ray until October, but if you want it digital, you don't have to wait. You can win a digital download code if you're a member of our Facebook listeners group or a subscriber to our InFocus newsletter. That's very cool. Good luck, everybody. Yeah, we actually reviewed this movie. You can... See that in our archives just a few weeks ago. And if you win, we want to know what you think. Do you agree with me that it's recommendable? Or do you agree with Justin and Jacob? So good luck. And whoever wins, we hope to see your review in the Facebook group. We'll announce our winners on September 5th. And if you're wanting more horror, and I think I do, we are going to say Candyman five times and have a review for you this Friday. Finally. Wow. How long has it been at least a year and a half that we have been waiting for this new Candyman film? The fact that it's finally coming out seems surreal. Not a huge promotional push for it the way Shang-Chi had. Yeah, but that last trailer, wow, got me real excited. Looks really good. It does. I'm like thinking that this could be the best one of the bunch. Easily, yeah. So be our donor instead of our victim. You can pledge to now playing and get a lot of bonus reviews, including all four Candyman films as of this Friday. If you donate now, you get the three Candyman reviews we did last year when this movie was supposed to come out. And then this Friday, finally the new Candyman review, plus so many other reviews that we've got. And then coming up in just a couple of weeks, you want Haunted Houses, we will be starting the entire Paranormal Activity series. So all for donors, find the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And now I'm not staying in this freaking house another second. For listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Is it over? Do you think it's over? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. What if I have a bad dream? Well, I'm sure we can handle any dream you have. 
you can hear more movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In our archive section, you can find reviews of the Insidious films, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Saw, and hundreds more. There's something down here. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. What if I dream that you sent us away into the dark and me got hurt? Really hurt. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks. Find the details on our website. I have to join them. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Now look, Doc, we're buddies, okay? But don't try to convert me. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Don't you love it here? This is so twisted. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I can't stand it anymore, and I, I have to die. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Now I want you two to get good rest. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Santiago, and Arnie. You all suffer from sleep disorders. Now Playing credits read by Brock. It knows my name. This time it knows my name. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. When he said those things, he believed them. You never did! Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Have you ever kept something yourself because you were afraid? All the time. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. So there won't be anyone around if you need help. We couldn't even hear you in the night. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Purgatory's over! You go to hell! Like she's dancing around, like you said, hills have eyes, spinning around the statue. The sound of music. C- c- saying that she and Hugh have <laughs> killed Grace. 
Sound of music, not hills have eyes. Oh yeah, the hills are alive. That's right. That's what I was searching for. <laughs> the hills have eyes musical was awesome. <laughs> I want Robert Wise to make that. <laughs> yeah, her spin. A legend of the Ten Rings. And if you've seen the new poster, I would not blame you if you actually think it's Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> Idris Elba's knuckles, excited. He killed it as McCavity and Cats, and now he's going to do another furry movie. Really? He's in this? No, he's in Sonic 2, the real Sonic 2. No, he's in Sonic 2. Uh, oh, he is? He's Knuckles. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Idris Elba's knuckles. No. Yes. I can't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we get to pay money and see that? Oh, my fucking God. Yes. That is too. The world is collapsing. Horny likes Sound of Music and Idris Elba, after getting paid all the money he did, says, yes, I'll be Knuckles in the Sonic sequel. Oh, my God. What's happening to the world? He can do it from home and not have to worry about COVID. He just put him. <laughs> oh, my God. He used to be so cool. What a cool dude he was. What the fuck is he doing? Making Knuckles cool, man. Mm, that'll be a feat. I can't remember what movie it was, but I did actually just see something where somebody did the entire voice work from their closet of their house. Maybe that's what Idris is looking at. It's not an animated movie. He's got to put on a suit with dots on it. No. No, they're not doing stop motion for him. <laughs> He's not doing mocap, but I wish he was. Now I want the butthole cut of Knuckles. 